The Spectator is searching for the UK's brightest entrepreneurs to enter the Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year awards, in partnership with Charles Stanley Wealth Managers. If you have a business that disrupts an existing market, a smart new way of doing things, or something that has incredible social impact, then apply by 1st of July at spectator.co.uk/innovator. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? It's been one year since the implementation of the national security law upon Hong Kong. What has the last twelve months been like, and what does the future hold for the city now? In this episode of Chinese Whispers, I speak to two people in the know. Shortly, we'll be joined by Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom, a historian of China from the University of California and author of *Vigil: Hong Kong on the Brink*. But first, I catch up with Jennifer Creary, who listeners of the Spectators podcast might remember from *Coronomics*, our short series about coronavirus around the world. Jennifer is a Hong Kong-based journalist who was at the time with the Hong Kong Free Press website and is now a journalist at the Financial Times. I started by asking her what the last week has been like in Hong Kong with the closure of Apple Daily in what has been quite an emotional time for the history of press freedom in the city. Yeah, you're right. This is this has sent shudders through society, both through the industry and also just regular people. It's, it's very much a watershed moment that has the potential to dramatically alter Hong Kong's political landscape. You know, this was the first time that police have arrested newsroom leaders under the national security law, and also the first time a news organization has been targeted for the content that it has published. So, police singled out thirty items that amounted to what. They call a conspiracy to to call for foreign sanctions against China, and we we don't know if these are op-eds or, or news pieces. So this really has wide-reaching implications for how local journalists report, because they say they don't know where you know the new red lines are being drawn, and media groups are warning that you know this will make it difficult for journalists to to speak to sources who are hesitant to, to talk on sensitive issues such as foreign sanctions. Because you know now police can seize reporters' devices through a court warrant, and that happened a few days ago. So this really has a chilling effect on the the city's media landscape, but also how people kind of operate at large and how whether or not people want to interact with journalists. So it is a difficult time for this this once free corner of Asia. Do you get the feeling on the ground that the general public care about its closure? I mean, how much do they care, and do they just think we've got other other media sources to consume anyway? It was just one of many newspapers that we read, or is it actually something that, for people who are out of the journalistic sphere, also something very important? Yeah, absolutely, and and you can see that by the the queues of hundreds of people lining up to buy the last edition of the newspaper in lieu of. Not being able to protest, you know, over the past year, the authorities have prohibited mass gatherings under new COVID restrictions. But also prior to that, authorities were preventing people from gathering because it would be an unauthorized assembly, they call it. So, you know, Apple Daily is is incredibly significant for people, and it's important to kind of contextualize this. When it first came about, it was very much. A tabloid that you know certainly in the '90s capitalized off sensationalist crime stories and 
celebrity sex scandals. But in recent years, particularly during the 2019 pro-democracy protests, Apple was seen as a kind of a, a pulse on the health of press freedom in the city and by extension, civil society. And so that's why you see this mass kind of outpouring of support because people can't express themselves by any other means. So Apple is certainly very important to, to Hong Kong. And of course, you know, it, it had its faults. It was a tabloid. But its, its supporters are saying that what is being mourned is not so much the death of Apple, although it had a strong core readership, but the removal of a space where an opposition publication like Apple Daily could exist. Mm. And Jennifer, you, you now work for the Financial Times in Hong Kong, but previously you were at the Hong Kong Free Press, which is an online outlet. Do you feel at risk as a journalist in Hong Kong? Or do you feel like because you're working for a foreign publication that you're somewhat protected? Well, the argument, particularly among media groups, is that the people who are going to be targeted first are local journalists. We have a very vibrant digital news sphere. Um, many of the publications are overtly pro-democratic. And the fear is, particularly among local journalists, that they'll be targeted first because, you know, authorities are saying that Apple Daily was a particularly kind of special case. John Lee, the, the Secretary for Security, who has since been promoted to deputy leader, referred to those who were arrested at Apple as criminals, despite there not having been a trial. But the worry now is that there are new red lines being drawn. And that's particularly difficult for, for local journalists who report on Hong Kong politics so closely. Now, foreign publications, of course, they, they, they report on a variety of issues. But the, the concern is particularly among, among local journalists, many of whom you know, have nowhere else to turn. They, they may only have a, a single passport. So the focus is very much on them at the moment. Have you spoken to these local journalist colleagues of yours and do you feel like they're going to be carrying out self-censorship? Well, I mean, self-censorship is an issue that has, has always plagued Hong Kong and can be applied you know, anywhere else in the world. But yeah, it's, it's certainly an issue because now they, they don't know where, where these new red lines are being drawn. You know, as I was saying previously, police singled out the, these 30 news items that, that they could be opinion pieces or news pieces. And some of them predate the national security law itself. And we don't know the contents of these, these publications. So reporters don't really know how to navigate highly sensitive topics. Well, especially when it's so opaque about what, what gets you in trouble and what doesn't. Yeah, exactly. And it, it just means that for, for many journalists, particularly the more than 800 journalists who formerly worked for Apple Daily and are now out of work, you know, that futures remain uncertain. And this amounts to a, a brain drain on the industry. Um, some of them may leave the industry altogether. They may leave Hong Kong, go to, go to Taiwan or, or the UK. And this was happening even prior to the closure of Apple Daily. So it's, it's certainly a troubling time for, for the industry in Hong yeah. Kong. That was Jennifer Query dialing in from Hong Kong. And I also spoke to Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom about the last year. And I started by asking him whether the implementation of the law has been fast. So I think the government has moved fast from the point of view of people in Hong Kong who prized a variety of kind of cultural institutions and modes of life that are all under threat. And in some cases have really been destroyed by the national security law. But I think from an outside perspective, something, and this I think has been quite clever in a sense by the Hong Kong authorities and by Beijing, it's been rolled out slowly in the sense that different sectors of society have been hit 
in different weeks and sometimes in different months and different days. And this has been a pattern, I think, in the tightening of the screws on Hong Kong from before the national security law. In other words, there has been a lot of international outrage, but there would have been even more if there had been one day you could point to where, I mean, obviously, if there had been tanks in the streets, which one of one of the images, which wasn't going to happen, but that was one of the kind of nightmare image that was conjured up a lot of times by the international press. And then when that didn't happen, it seemed that anything else was somehow less than that. And there weren't, you know, dead bodies in the streets. But even something short of that, if within the first week, say, of the national security law going into effect, every prominent opposition person had been arrested and was being held in jail without bail, that would have focused international outrage. But instead, there's been a period. There were a small number of arrests at first under the national security law, ongoing arrests under pre-existing laws. But over time, cumulatively, you now have a sense in which almost every highly visible figure in an opposition role many of them have ended up either in jail or leaving because of the the threat of jail hanging over over their heads and you just have a variety you have all kinds of things being chipped away the way i have found it useful to think about hong kong for really close to a decade now and in some ways since 1997 that i think is also useful for thinking about the last year is to think about if you moved from a mainland city to hong kong what would be the things that you would see and you would hear that would instantly let you know, I'm not just over the border in Shenzhen. I'm not in Shanghai, even if the malls look similar, even if the restaurants, some of the restaurants have the same chains there and things like that. And you could point to just many things of that. And and I did spend a lot of trips when I would go to the mainland, I would stop in Hong Kong en route, or I would stop in Hong Kong going back. And there are just certain things that stand out for me about each of the visits. So one thing would be, I would know that there were films about Tiananmen mm -hmm. that you could see potentially showing in a theater in Hong Kong, even after 1997, you couldn't on the mainland. And in recent news, we've seen that there'll be tighter censorship on film, which presumably will mean that won't happen. There were live broadcasts of international programs that you couldn't see on the mainland. They would be on delay because you'd want to make sure that there wouldn't be anything that, that the government didn't want people to see. But you could see those easily in Hong Kong. And there's been examples of that being held back. One of the key things, which I think relates to what's in the news this week, was I just knew when I got to Hong Kong compared to being on the mainland, if I looked at the newspapers on display at a newsstand, they wouldn't tend to be covering the main story the same way. There would be a variety of viewpoints put in fact. And there would be potentially editorial cartoons making fun of the local leader and potentially making fun of the national yeah. leader. So that was very clear to me. I went in 2002, I happened to be in the mainland in Hong Kong right around the time that Hu Jintao came to power replacing Jiang Zemin, which was one of the sort of smoothest leadership transitions that the Chinese Communist Party has had. And on the mainland, every news source by them was covering that in a positive way. Mm. In Hong Kong, there were, and not just Apple Daily, but there were multiple venues that were kind of making fun of it, wondering if Jiang Zemin would be a puppet master behind the scenes. And the idea that you could be in a place that was part of the People's Republic of China, a Communist Party-run one-party state, it was really amazing to think that that could still happen in Hong Kong. So early on, I kept being surprised by how much of the difference 
was remaining. And then in the last, really the last six years, when I've come, I've been amazed at how much has disappeared and each of the kinds of realms that made it seem clearly separate. And, you know, marches being able to take place with clearly big political goals was something that couldn't happen on the mainland since 1989. There could be marches on specific subjects. There could be marches that didn't challenge the structure, but in Hong Kong, you couldn't. So those have disappeared or at least been made illegal. So in all kinds of realms, there's been a set of disappearances, and it's just been happening much, much faster since the national security law came into effect. But it's part of an ongoing pattern. Jeff, you know, that's such a good way to think about it, because that's exactly the same experience I had when I was going to Hong Kong, because as someone who grew up in the mainland, you know, that wasn't the sort of stuff I was used to seeing. I remember seeing on the newsstands, you know, really satirical mocking pictures of President Xi in a Hong Kong's newsstand, stuff that I was utterly shocked. It was a culture shock to see that there. And it's sad to think that you won't be able to see that there now. And I mean, the process you're describing is like, you know, death by a thousand cuts, isn't it? It's Lin Shi. And, you know, it's like water dripping on a rock. It's, it happens so slowly, fast for some people, but it happens gradually over time that you, in the end you get eroded. The water dripping on a rock, is, it's wonderful. I actually end Vigil, the book I wrote, by talking about the different kinds of metaphors, the way water figures in the symbolism in Hong Kong movements, protesters saying being like water, but also the water-related one, which is similar to the water dripping on a rock that a Hong Kong writer that I drew on used was the frog in a pot yes. of slowly heating up water. And that if there's just the turning it up bit by bit, and I and I do think that for a lot of people who, there are, there are both people who focus on these issues and think that actually the temperature is rising very fast. But I think that that rolling out of things can mean that if you're just thinking on a kind of day-to-day thing, maybe you don't notice mm. the sum total because you can still go on the internet, I assume, now in Hong Kong. I haven't been there lately, but I assume you can still go on the Hong Kong internet and access many sites that you can't on the mainland. If you're, say, a business person, you can say, well, it still isn't like the mainland because I don't have to use a VPN to read the New York Times or something like that. And so there, there are ways you can still say, it, it's wrong to say that there's there's no difference, but the trend line yeah is toward there being less and less difference. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing that shocked me was going to Hong Kong University and seeing the statue, the garish orange sculpture that commemorated the victims of Tiananmen Square. You know, that sort of stuff you can never have in mainland China. And, you know, (laughs) really, that was when I, you know, that was one country, two systems, but obviously it's very different now. Jeff, I just want to pick you up on some of the more specific things that have happened. For one, you've mentioned Apple Daily, and obviously that's the latest big news where this pro-democracy tabloid has essentially been forced to shut in a very emotional way. What does that mean for the press landscape in, in Hong Kong? We talked a bit, you know, in general about how you might not see those front pages anymore, but do the other outlets just acquiesce for the fear of the national security law? There are people that I follow who are still on the ground in Hong Kong who say that one of the things they get very tired of is references to the death of Hong Kong. And I think it's important to know that people will continue to try to push back and to try to find zones where they can express whatever freedom they can. And I I think it's really important at this moment. A lot of people in Hong Kong concerned with these things are reading Vaclav Havel, The Power of the Powerless. And it's about small things like what he was famous for is if a shopkeeper, if you simply don't put up a sign saying that you support the regime, at this point, that can be seen as a kind of subtle way of showing that you still 
care about things. And people are still frequenting businesses that were seen as being part of this yellow economy, part of businesses that were supporting. So you will see there have been journalists on the mainland who've tried for decades now in less and less freedom, but they try to find ways to push the envelope in small ways that they can. So so some of what we'll be seeing, I think, in Hong Kong is just much subtler efforts to try to carve out space. The Hong Kong Free Press has tweeted today, that the head of it, that, that they're going to continue doing what they're doing, that there still are online venues that are doing things. So I think, I think one of the things that's important about Apple Daily, that going back to kind of what, what you were saying about things that you see in public mm. that remind you of what's different. And by the way, that statue is still at Hong Kong University. And at Chinese University of Hong Kong, there's still a goddess of democracy statue. And again, toppling those statues would be something that would really rivet attention. So my assumption is that that will probably happen, but it will happen not in the same news cycle week as Apple Daily closing, which is, again, that death by a, a thousand cuts. Yeah. You know? And what about electoral reform as well? Because that's been happening, too, in, in the background. Hong Kong's legislature was obviously never fully democratic, but the government has introduced reforms that will make it even less voter sensitive. Can you explain about what's been going on there? Yeah, I think that's that's very important. And sort of the last moment when there was... I'd say a a sort of widespread hopeful moment for uh, people who cared about this kind of, you know, maintaining a real strength to the two systems part of one country, two systems, was when there was a democratic sweep of the district council elections, which are the most democratic. It's a lower level democracy. No, No part of Hong Kong's political system has ever been fully democratic. There's never been a time, there was certainly never a time under British rule when the most powerful person in Hong Kong was appointed by London. There was never a time when the people of Hong Kong got to choose their leader. There was the hope that this would happen over time after 1997. But instead, there was a a tilted election. There was an election for the chief executive after 1997, but less than 2,000 Hong Kong citizens voted for that person. And the slate of people they could vote for was vetted by Beijing. There was a legislative council that, again, it was rigged so that it was almost impossible for there to ever be a Democratic majority or an opposition majority, but it was set up so that there was a sizable opposition. And that has now been changed. There there have been a series of affronts before the national security law. There were efforts to disqualify people from running for office if they had said anything that was seen as too too daring. So there were there were moves to tighten it. And then since then there was the canceling of an election, partly on the grounds of COVID but also partly this is what authoritarian governments do periodically when they're afraid they're not going to do as well as as they want to do. There have also been some of the arrests for the national security law and others have been basically targeting people who could have run for slots like that. And they've been pressured to leave or they've been in jail. And so there's been harassment mm-hmm. at different kinds of levels to prevent that from happening. But I think it's important to say that so there, there wasn't There was never a fully democratic system or or even close. But what there was, was going back to this sort of what are the public signs, there was enough of an opposition in the legislature so that even if they didn't, didn't win votes, there could be a sort of spirited debate over things that the government wanted to push through. And at certain key moments, the government would backtrack. Like it did over the extradition bill that started all of this. 
Right. So the extradition bill was backed up. But I would go back even further. In 2003, there was an effort by the Hong Kong government to bring in something, an anti-subversion law that would have many of the same kind of characteristics of the national security law. And there were massive protests and the government then backed down. You know, There was a way in which they, they just felt that the the amount of public attention that would be there in part because of protests and in part because of debates within the legislature, it just wasn't worth going forward with it. And that was true of patriotic education efforts in 2012. There were there were efforts to try to bring in some kind of something more like mainland style education and teenagers and their teachers both were protesting this and others joined in and the government backed down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the teenagers for that movement, people like Agnes Chow and Joshua Wong, later in 2014 became part of the protest to call for more universal suffrage. They formed a political party and they put up candidates for office who then, once they got elected, got disqualified. And then before the national security law, in part because the activities like that were being made so uh, dangerous and illegal, they disbanded that party. Nathan Law, one of the ones who had been elected and then disqualified, is now here in London, <laughs> in exile in London. Joshua Wong, one of the other you know, May Leaders is, is in jail. Agnes Chow was in jail and is now out of jail, but clearly with the threat of new imprisonment hanging over her head. Yeah. And, and as you say, future people like them are going to find it much harder to get elected onto LegCo, the Legislative Council, because of these reforms, which would see, I think I'm right in saying 70 representatives increase to 90 and only 20 of those directly elected. So obviously, the balance isn't going to ever be in the pro-democracy side at that rate. You mentioned education. Am I right in thinking that there have also been changes to the curriculum in the last year? Yeah, there have definitely been moves to that. And and I think it's both there are specific moves that actually change the curriculum, but there are also just signals being set at all levels that if you do things that are out of step with a particular patriotic line set by Beijing that emphasizes certain things about national history that you could be dismissed or you could be prosecuted. Mm. Even primary school teachers who you think, you know, their job surely should be anything from political, but have been dismissed. Yeah, that is that's happening. And, and I do think we should think of what's going on in China in part of a larger global context. There's been a kind of increased politicization of narratives about the national past. I mean, this is going on in Britain, it's going on in the United States. And there's nothing, I guess, you know, unique about the Chinese authorities and under Xi Jinping more than ever, saying that they want to impose their vision Mm. of historical events as widely as possible and use it to try to stir up patriots. And we see this in all kinds of places. The issue is how much room is there for debate or what are the costs for a teacher? Yeah who wants to teach things a different way. And in Hong Kong, the stakes of that are going up quickly. You knew in the mainland, it's been clear. And we, we've been seeing, I think it's also important to not think of the Chinese Communist Party as having one line forever. They have one line forever on certain things, but there's been more space or less space yeah. for debates on history on the mainland in press and in textbooks. Up to a few years ago, there was one class, at least one class, on the history of the Chinese Cultural Revolution being taught Son Peitong taught it at Fudan University, but then that course was canceled. And then she's now outside of China teaching. So this is, there have been ways in which 
there have been tightenings going on, limiting the space for operation in the mainland, and that's being mirrored in Hong Kong. So it's not even, in some ways, there may soon be less room for debate over historical events in China than there was on the mainland in 2005, 2006, when there was a, a magazine called Freezing Point that that ran very challenging kind of debates on history and then got closed down. And that was a, a sign of a chill mm. on, the, on the mainland. So, so we have a sense not only is not only is Hong Kong being incorporated more forcefully into the modes of the mainland, but it's being incorporated into a mainland that is now more tightly controlled and more nationalistic in the way that the, the government is handling things than it has been for decades. What I find incredible in my conversations to mainlanders about the Hong Kong protests and the ways to make Hong Kongers feel more Chinese, like more that they belong in the country, is that they always go back to education, that education is the thing that they think Hong Kong went wrong, that they were teaching their kids all this rubbish about democracy and not loving the country enough. And what I what I always find incredible is that cognitive dissonance, that you yourself have grown up in this very monotonous, one homogenous way of looking at things from the mainland school system, but then you are advocating that for Hong Kong. I mean, I guess fish doesn't know it's in water, so maybe that's maybe that's why. But education is certainly very much important to the mainland view of seeing this is how you change it. And, and I, I bet they're hoping that the next generation of primary school children who come from this will be less radicalised. But I mean, I don't know about you, Jeff, but do you think that this is the sort of thing that will de-radicalize people that will stifle something like democratic dissent because what we saw earlier in June for the Tiananmen anniversary that wasn't allowed to happen was that all these subversive ways of remembering the day instead you had people putting on their flashlights whilst they're walking through the streets as if they're going about their business but they're actually holding a silent vigil you had people leaving candles on tram lines and that sort of stuff so maybe people just find a way to remember it anyway yeah I think I think one of the things that it's worth thinking about as much as the the rhetoric from Beijing is to think about this making all parts of a coherent nation cohere again. In fact, you have a lot of places within the territory of the People's Republic of China that have their own distinctive histories and traditions. So it's much more like an imperial, uh, it's a colonial systems have often been trying to use things like education to create all within the empire to see things in a certain way. And you you can see that, so for example, in the Soviet Union, it was yoked together from these different republics, but a sense of separate identity within those republics stayed on. And when there was space for them to reemerge, they did. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is a kind of nightmare that haunts Beijing, that dissolution of the Soviet empire. But I do think that part of the lesson is that there are people that keep alive different ways of remembering, even in very authoritarian structures. And again, in, you know, in places like in Communist Party run states in different places, when they've tried to tamp down local identities, when they've tried to tamp down alternative ways of seeing people, people keep those alive, reading stories. It's partly there is no there is no perfect totalitarianism. There's never a place where there aren't the cracks where the light gets in, yeah. as Leonard Cohen put it, you know, that there are going to be people who tell stories that go outside of line, even if everything you're learning in the schoolroom could be controlled. That's not going to mean that there won't be people telling you 
telling you stories within your family or or other things. And and they don't have to necessarily be political ones. When you were talking about the irony with when you talk to people from the mainland, I I'm struck too by the fact that there's a very corrosive thing because there can be very stereotypical views of mainlanders among some in Hong Kong that feeds on a stereotypical view back and forth. But if you actually talk to people on the mainland, say the place I know best is Shanghai, you can talk to people in Shanghai about, well, is there something distinctively Shanghainese mm. about a view of the life? Can you, can you say, I'm incredibly proud to be Chinese, look at my country, but don't you still, might you still think that there's something distinctive and worth preserving about Shanghai? And they'll say, of course, of course. And, you know, that part of what's going on in Hong Kong is about political difference, but part of it is about kind of cultural difference. In China, we always joke that the Shanghai culture is A, to be rude, and B, for the men to be soft and bag carriers for their wives. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I see so many of the stereotypes about Hong Kong now were like stereotypes of Shanghai, you know, it was too, too connected to the, the West and too bourgeois and too, uh, all of these things, yeah. you know, were things that were said. And Jeff, one thing that I, I really wanted to ask you in this conversation is something that I often think about when I think about Hong Kong, which is that there have been protests before in, in the city most notably in 2014 when it was a completely peaceful one and obviously the one in 2019 was very different in nature but for a similar cause for the same cause and with much of the same people but what i always wonder is given the way that china is going did the 2019 protest actually expedite the choking off of the city did it actually force the chinese communist party to go at a faster rate by putting in this national security law than maybe it otherwise had planned to or had thought about doing so in some ways not that they shouldn't have protested but in some ways was it actually counterproductive in bringing forward 2047 the end of the 50-year period so i think in in some ways thinking of the bringing forward of the 2047 period is that time that things were supposed to run out, there was a joke going around on social media where young Hong Kongers would say, I saw this from Joanna Chu, but I don't know who started it. I thought I'd be older in 2047. I mean, these people saying, you know, I, I expected it, it to come later. So I think it probably did in some ways speed it up. It gave Beijing a sense that the stakes were high and that things couldn't go on. I think the pandemic provided a kind of global distraction that also provided an opportunity, I think, that that Beijing would seize. You know, I, I think there are ways to critique elements of the movement in 2019. I think, you know, I think it's important to not indulge in kind of hagiography and make it seem that there was, you know, there were no mistakes or there were no missteps by the movement. I, this is the same way I think about Tiananmen. I think it's important when you, even if you fundamentally sympathize with the Tiananmen protests, you shouldn't be blind to elitism within the movement and mistakes that were made. And similarly with 2019, there were all kinds of issues and things that if you could, you know, reel the, take the, the film back, you would change the, the scene at different points. I mean, I do feel fundamentally sympathetic to the protest. There were some ugly, violent moments by the protesters, but those tended to come, those all came after the first ugly, violent moments by police. Throughout the movement, it really, there was much more force used by those opposing the protest than those yes. engaged in the protest, more violence against bodies. The violence on the protest side was often against buildings and symbols. But the question of whether it was a mistake, you know, whether doing this brought things on 
faster. In the film, The Gate of Heavenly Peace, that I was an advisor for about the Tiananmen protests, there's a scene where Han Dongfang, one of the worker leaders in 1989, who's actually remained, has now been active for labor rights in Hong Kong and is, is still there. He asked that question. He sort of posed it to himself about 1989. Because, you know, there, there is a sense that people said after that, did it set the cause of reform back in different ways? And the analogy he used that's always stuck with me is he said, it's like being a starving person who sees a tree with unripe fruit on it. At one level, you know that it actually isn't going to help you to eat this unripe fruit. You won't be able to digest it, but you can't. It's just not humanly possible to not eat the fruit. And I think, you know, some of this, that there seemed to be the odds were incredibly long that anything could be done to stop the trajectory that Hong Kong was on. And I think particularly younger people in Hong Kong who felt that for most of their life, they were going to live under an increasingly rigid regime. And this might be a last chance to try to push back against it. And the odds were very, very slim that it would have any kind of success. But there also are lots of examples in history of movements that seem to have very little chance, but because of the way history works, they do. They do succeed. I mean, you you had cases where you could say like, okay, for, for Hong Kong people, it failed in 2014. You had this giant movement and you still didn't get a fundamental change. Why would you think in 2019 it would be any different? Yeah, absolutely. But the same logic would apply for people in East Germany who rose up against Communist Party rule in the past. And then in 1989, somehow it worked. Or in Hungary, tanks had come in in 1956 to crush, but still people kept trying at other points and it failed again. At another point, it succeeded. It's not that there's even space for that within Hong Kong now, but I think we do have to remember how often history just, just surprises us. And lots of things that you could think, you know, that wasn't that too soon. And I guess hindsight is always twenty twenty. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.